If you have Bibles, um, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Uh, if you're using a black hardcover Bible, there's some on your seat or under your seat or somewhere nearby. Uh, Luke chapter 12 is page 871. Most of you will have never heard of a man named Charles Feeney. Maybe a few will, but until a few years ago, hardly anyone had ever heard of this man. And actually, the fact that you had not heard of him was kind of the point. Uh, he went to great lengths to maintain anonymity as he gave away an incredible amount of money. So listen to this part, part of this article that Forbes magazine wrote about him in 2012. Chuck Feeney is the James Bond of philanthropy. Over the last 30 years, he's crisscrossed the globe conducting a clandestine operation to give away $7.5 billion derived from his empire of duty-free shops. Uh, his foundation, the Atlantic Philanthropies, has funneled $6.2 billion into education, science, healthcare, aging, and civil rights in the United States, Australia, Vietnam, Bermuda, South Africa, and Ireland. Few living people have given away more, and no one at his wealth level has ever given away their fortune so completely during their lifetime. The remaining $1.3 billion will be spent by 2016, which it was. They gave away their last grant just a couple weeks ago. And the foundation will be shuttered in 2020. So they're keeping a small staff for the next four years just to maintain support for the initiatives that they've rolled out recently. But the Forbes article says this, while the business world titans obsess over piling up as many riches as possible, Feeney is working double time to die broke. Feeney is working double time to die broke. I don't know about you, but I would love to meet this guy. I would love to meet this guy, and that's because his pursuit is so radically different from what often characterizes the, the society in which we live. I would love to hear more about what has motivated this pursuit for Charles Feeney. I'd love to hear, he's very private, as you might imagine, about his life, and he's private about his religious views, but I'd just be curious what fuels the desire to give away your fortune so completely in your lifetime. And I don't know where he lands as, as, it, as it pertains to his views on Jesus and his views on Christianity, but at least in this aspect of his life, his pursuit really looks and feels and smells like and tastes like the kingdom of God. Because what we're reading today in Luke 12 is the opposite and far more common approach to how we handle wealth and abundance. Uh, Jesus shares a parable about a rich man and through this negative example is teaching us how we should ourselves view and handle abundance. So listen now uh, with open ears to this book that we love. I'll start in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12 and read through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. We pray this morning, even now, that you would open our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, our hearts to hold it, and our hands to serve it. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The occasion for this parable in the Gospel of Luke is a comment from this man in the crowd. Jesus is teaching a big crowd of people. One man in the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In the counseling world, in the counseling field, this is what you would call the presenting problem. Presenting problem is an issue that causes a person to seek out counsel, to seek out help. And most often, the presenting problem really isn't the biggest thing going on. It's really just a symptom of something deeper that's happening, something more dangerous that's happening. So when we think about even, for example, the sanctity of life and those kinds of issues, unplanned pregnancies and abortions, those are symptoms. They're presenting problems, but really they are symptoms of deeper things. In Luke 12, the deeper and more dangerous problem is greed or covetousness which is an intense desire to possess something that is not your own. And so Jesus skips past what really is a far more trivial matter about an inheritance, and we never actually do learn, learn what happens with this. And he offers a warning to the whole crowd. He says, Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he proceeds then to tell this parable that reveals there's actually an even deeper, more fundamental issue underneath coveting, right? What on the surface here is about an inheritance is actually about greed, and we will be greedy or we will be generous based upon who our lives are directed toward. So at the end of the day, this really ends up being a parable about the selfward life compared to the Godward life. The selfward life contrasted with the Godward life. And Jesus says in verse 21, Will we lay up treasure for ourselves, or will we be rich toward God? Before we delve into that and explore the difference between the selfward life and the Godward life, just see this, though, in in Jesus' approach here. Like this nameless man in the crowd, you and I need Jesus to bore through the surface, to bore through the symptoms and the presenting problems of our lives and to expose the far bigger and far more dangerous issues that exist underneath. And since Jesus' ministry was on earth was three years long and and 2,000 years ago, the way that this most often happens today is through other human beings. We need other people to do for us what Jesus does for this man, and we need to do for others what Jesus does for this man. Right? See in this parable, even in the setting of this parable, the love that Jesus has for this nameless man in the crowd. He doesn't just give him a simple answer, a simple fix to his presenting problem. He instead puts the spotlight on what's really going on underneath. Right? So may we do that same thing in our relationships with each other. The contrast between a self-word and a God-word life really can surface anywhere. It certainly surfaces in our view and our use of wealth and abundance. So just briefly this morning with a little bit of time that we have, let's consider three questions that are raised by Jesus' parable and how we can apply its wisdom to our lives. And the questions are these. Where does abundance come from? 
What do we do with abundance, and where does abundance go? Where does it come from? What do we do with it? Where does it go? So first, where does abundance come from? It's really important to mention here, wealth and abundance is not inherently wrong. But we have to think about the source. Right? For example, if the source of abundance comes from oppressing other people, that's wrong. James calls out uh, woes to rich people who oppress the poor in order to gain wealth. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet is laying out God's case against his people and how they have rejected him. And one of the specific things Isaiah says is that they have neglected and oppressed people in order to amass wealth for themselves. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. Right? The stuff that belongs to them, that's in your house. So this is why it's really important for us to think about our vocations, to think about the sources of our income. It's also why it's important to think really deeply about where we spend our income and if we might either intentionally or unintentionally be contributing to the wealth of others who are oppressing people. And one of the things that God has done, I think, very graciously in our day, there's been renewed emphasis in recent years in some of these movements toward fair trade and toward thinking about what is a living wage and, and how do we think about that. And, I, and as everything, there's complex and, and nuanced kinds of questions around that. But if your default position, if your default posture when you think about where am I spending my money and all this fair trade stuff and living wages and all that, if our default posture is who cares, then hear from Isaiah and hear from God through Isaiah, God cares. God cares about those things. And as we grow in a lifestyle of mercy, these are really issues and questions that we as the people of God should be at the forefront of. Now for the man in this parable, there's no immorality in how he acquires his abundance. There's no oppression of others that we see here. But even in a completely just way of making money and making a living, the question stands, from where has his abundance come? Jesus hints at it when he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. I'm sure this man worked really hard, and I'm sure he used the best and latest of whatever farming techniques were available at the time. But the emphasis isn't on his technique, isn't on his hard work, it's on the land. And if anyone should recognize the limit of his ability to control the outcomes or to control the take-homes of their work, it's people like this man who live off the land, who work in different fields of agriculture, and whose work is constantly subject to weather and conditions of the soil, whose work is constantly susceptible to natural disasters. When your work is conditional on these things, it, will, it should serve as a constant reminder of whose world this is and really, ultimately, just how little control we have in, in, in our pursuit of acquiring an abundance. Whatever our vocation is, I know many of us in our day don't work in agriculture anymore. Whatever our vocation is, as the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, what do we have that we did not receive? What do we have that we did not receive? What do we possess that is not ultimately God's? Because this is really where the contrast between a selfward life and a Godward life begins, to consider the source of what we have. It changes everything about how we're going to use and view wealth and abundance. Because if abundance is primarily the result of self, 
if it's about me and my hard work and my efforts that got this wealth for me, then I will inevitably feel entitled to do with it whatever I want. But if, on the other hand, abundance is received, then consistency and integrity will demand that I use it as God's because I've received it from him. So if we find ourselves in a place of abundance, and the reality is is that the vast majority of us sitting in the room this morning do, in a historical kind of context of that, the vast majority of us find ourselves in a place of abundance. Consider where that abundance has come from. Think deeply about where your abundance has come from. If it has come through the oppression of others, that's a place for us to repent and turn. Even then, in our honest income, our just income, we must see that everything we have has come from the hand of God. Second, what do we do with abundance? What do we do with abundance? And a little warning as we delve into this. You will likely, and maybe you already do right now, you will likely find yourself wanting a formula. You will want me to give you a formula. And you won't find one. I mean, you will because there are hundreds and thousands of them out there. You'll be able to find a formula. And that's because there are men and women just like you and me who would rather live life on on autopilot and have a formula. But remember what Jesus is doing here. He's digging below the surface into the heart of the matter. This parable is prompted by a question about an inheritance. And the reason that formulas aren't sufficient for questions like these is because formulas permit you to bypass your heart. Formulas allow you to do an end around your soul. If we are supposed to just give every dollar over this number away, that will become a robotic, mechanical response. It will be void of faith and trust in God. On the other hand, if we're supposed to keep every dollar up to this amount, that will likewise become mechanical and robotic and will be void of faith and trust in God. And a life void of faith and trust in God, that is the definition of a selfward life. A man in this parable has such an abundance that he has no place to hold it. So he tears down his barns and he builds larger ones to store it all. And we know that's the wrong decision because we've read ahead to the end of the parable where God calls him a fool for doing so. But isn't that almost exactly the same thing that Joseph did in Egypt when in response to Pharaoh's dream about seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine, they built massive storehouses and stored a ton of grain and then got really wealthy off selling that grain when the famine hit. Joseph is commended in Genesis for his wisdom. And likewise, throughout the book of Proverbs, there are calls to wisdom and prudence in saving up for the sake of providing for yourselves in times of want and in lean years. So is amassing an abundance wise or is it foolish? It depends on who you trust. It depends on who you trust. Are you trusting God or are you trusting yourself? Or maybe another way to think about it, Do you view the abundance you have in light of God, or do you view it in spite of God? You might think it really harsh that God calls this man in the parable a fool. It's a strong word. It's a strong condemnation. But the essence of foolishness is living your life as if there is no God. 
The essence of foolishness is living your life as if there is no God. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 14 and again in Psalm 53 when he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right? Foolishness is living our lives as if God is not there and working. It's trusting ourselves instead of God. And the rich man in this, in this parable, his trust is clearly in himself. He pays no mind to God. And maybe you heard it as we read it. Did you hear all of the eyes and mys in his response? What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. This is a selfward life. Having received the plentiful produce of the land, it's now become all about him and what is his. And it's painfully obvious when you pack that many I's and my's into like a sentence. It's hard to ignore. But is that not the same thing that you and I do as we think about my job and my bank account, my home, my car, my retirement? Having received from God, does our trust remain in God or does it immediately then shift course to trusting in ourselves? Question for you this morning, where are you trusting yourself? Where are you trusting yourself in your life? And this is a really critical question for us to wrestle with when we're considering issues of mercy and justice for more than, than one reason, really, because some of us are, are so inclined to give everything we have away. We're inclined to show so much compassion to those in need that we burn out and we experience compassion fatigue. Others of us resist showing compassion because we want to make sure that we have more than enough stored up for ourselves. And what I would say to you this morning is that both of these are just different forms of trusting yourself. They're just different forms of trusting yourself. One is trusting your ability to show compassion. And more than a few times, I've, been, I've seen and been called to come in and care for people who have responded to a need in compassion in a really unwise way. Before you quit your job, before you neglect your family, before you shipwreck your marriage, think about whether or not you are trusting yourself rather than God. Because trusting in God can mean in that moment, if it is truly not wise for you to pursue that in that way, to let someone else step in and meet that need rather than meeting it yourself. On the other hand, if you're so calculated with your efforts and so slow to step out in faith that you never attempt anything for fear of failure because you can't see how the whole thing is going to play out. See in that moment that, that that move toward neglecting justice and mercy is really you trusting in yourself. We love to call that wisdom, but sometimes it truly is not. And which one of those better describes you and where you find yourself this morning? Uh, my take as just one seeking to care for us in this group of men and women as a church here in this region is that far more of us are like the man in this parable. Far more of us are like this rich fool, storing up an abundance for ourselves that we might never have to be functionally dependent on God. And if that's where you find yourself, I just would say to you this morning, friends, let's not live our lives as if there is no God. Let's not live our lives as if there is no God. Let's not live our lives as if we've, though received everything, we've received everything from God that we can now handle life on our own. That will maybe appear like wisdom in certain instances, but truly 
That's the definition of foolishness. So that's where abundance has come from. That's a little bit about thinking about what to do with abundance. Lastly, where does abundance go? Just as it's important to think about where it's come from, we have to think about what happens with abundance. And God says here at the end of this parable to this rich fool, the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Whose will they be? It's a reminder that you can't take this with you. Or as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, we have brought nothing into this world, we will carry nothing out of it. Notice how God addresses this man on his own terms. Seeing how he is so resolved on trusting himself, God just offers practical considerations that require no faith at all. He just offers some common sense thoughts for this man to consider. Your abundance is going to pass to someone else when you die. And what guarantee do you have that they are going to use it well? None. There's no guarantee. It's exactly what the author of Ecclesiastes is lamenting in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says that who knows if your beneficiaries will be faithful and wise with the abundance that you accumulate and then hand off to them. It's just as likely that they squander it once you're gone, rendering all the efforts you've made to accumulate it in your life futile. Now, perhaps for some of you, you're in that stage of life where you're considering that exact question, where your abundance is going to go when you die. But even before that, much of the seduction of abundance, much of the deception, I think, that exists in our day about abundance has to do with retirement. And we don't have time to get into all of that in detail this morning, but you don't have to look far to see a hundred ads about, do you have the right number in your bank account so that you can retire comfortably? In our planning for retirement, are we planning dependence of God, on God out of our lives? That's the question for us to wrestle with. In our planning for retirement, are we planning dependence on God out of our lives? Because if our aim, like this rich fool, is to relax and eat and drink and be merry in spite of God, rather than in light of God and his ongoing provision and care, something's gone wrong. Or something has gone wrong if our goal is to find relaxation and merriment irrespective of Christ rather than rest and fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ. So don't build a life where you can be content if God doesn't show up and provide for you. For the man in this parable, his life is required of him that very night. And here's the question that that, that, that offers to each of us. Having prepared so diligently for the future, what if you don't get the future? Having prepared so diligently for this future, what if you don't get it? What if your life ends now? Are we living our lives in such a way that we'd be satisfied with that outcome? Because if it feels like we will have wasted our lives preparing for this future that never came, that's all the more reason to, in the present, stop placing our trust in ourselves and put it in God instead. I don't know the heart-level convictions of Charles Feeney, as I mentioned. But I do so appreciate his example of giving away almost everything he has in his own lifetime. If you think about this, the amount of money that he made, managed wisely, would mean that every single descendant of his for a thousand years would live not just in comfort, but opulence. But as it does for so many other wealthy people in our world, would that not likely shackle his descendants into a life where trust in God is not necessary? Would it not leave so many worthwhile causes 
So many people in need, untouched and uncared for in his lifetime as his billions sat idly in bigger and bigger barns. Whatever Feeney's motives, for we who follow Jesus, for we who claim to trust God, let us display our trust by the way we view and handle abundance. A lifestyle of mercy is a lifestyle of being rich toward God, of seeing ourselves not as a storehouse of the abundance of God, but as a conduit of the abundance of God. Because after all, that is the only way that you and I have been offered the opportunity to trust in God in the first place. That Jesus Christ left his riches, the riches of heaven, and became poor that you and I might become rich. And when Paul says that in his letter to the Corinthians, he's not talking about that we might become materially rich and wealthy, but spiritually wealthy, that we might receive the riches of God's mercy and grace. So the only consistent way for us to respond is to not hoard the riches of God for ourselves, but to be rich toward him with the abundance he's provided. So having received from God, will we be rich toward God? From him, through him, and to him are all things. So may we not be consumed with enlarging our barns. Instead, may God enlarge our hearts with deeper trust in him. And may we display that trust in our generosity, in more and more generosity, as we are rich toward God, rich toward others. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, you have been, in Jesus, rich toward us. You have opened up an abundance to us and poured out this inexhaustible well of your grace and your mercy and your love. Help us to receive it. And receiving it, help us to, to maintain a consistent and, and, and integrity-filled response of not accumulating and hoarding the abundance you have offered, but in turn being rich toward you and using the wealth and the abundance that you provide to care for others. Would you give us true wisdom in these decisions? Because there's not a formula. But I pray that our wisdom would not be foolishness, that we would truly live our lives as though you are real because you are as though you are present and involved in our lives because you are. And that we would not build the kind of life where we could be content apart from you. As we come to this table now, open our eyes again to the riches you have poured out on us in Jesus. And may we receive it with hearts of faith, hearts of trust in you. Amen.